Good morning, and welcome to Counterbalance. Good morning, and welcome to Counterbalance, a new KZUM radio talk show featuring progressive Christian voices. I am Beth Menhusen, one of your co-hosts for this program. And I am Richard Randolph, also a co-host for Counterbalance. Beth and I are both pastors at Christ Connection Point United Methodist Church here in Lincoln, one church in two locations with two very different personalities, but sharing a common commitment to act inclusively, seek God, serve others, and do justice. That's right. At Christ Connection Point, we strive to welcome, include, and affirm all persons, regardless of their ethnicity, economic class, or sexual orientation. We recognize that all persons are created in the image of God and loved by God for exactly who they are. For more information about our church, please visit ChristUMC.org. And also check out ConnectionPointLink.org. This is our inaugural episode of Counterbalance, and today we'll be exploring the recent Nebraska floods and how they are connected to climate change. Then we'll reflect on the implications of climate change for Christians and other persons of faith with our in-studio guest, Reverend Kim Morrow from the Verdis Group. Kim also serves on the board of Nebraska Interfaith Power and Light. Before launching into our first episode, we would like to share a little bit of our vision for our new radio program, Counterbalance. We envision a show that focuses on social, ethical, spiritual, and faith issues from a progressive Christian perspective. Topics will also include interreligious sharing as well as science and faith topics. We've probably all heard conservative uh, Christian perspectives on other radio stations. However, we plan to offer an alternative voice for KZUM listeners an alternative, progressive perspective, which is also authentically Christian which takes the Bible seriously, along with Christian tradition and current perspectives. We have named our new show Counterbalance because we seek to counterbalance more conservative Christian perspectives with a progressive, even liberal perspective. We hope to host this program to inform, inspire, and entertain people in Lincoln and beyond who are spiritual seekers or liberal Christians. We also hope that we can engage in interfaith dialogue, incorporating guests and listeners from other faith traditions in the interest of peace and mutual understanding. Our show will take the format of a talk show where we discuss issues together, interview people in the field, and take questions from listeners. Part of our goal for this show is to provide a forum for civil discourse. When a particular program is opened up for callers, we anticipate receiving Calls from people who may very well disagree with us or our guest for the day, or even sometimes with each other, sometimes even vehemently. In those situations, we will work hard to create an ambiance of civil discussion. Thanks, Richard. At this point, let's turn to our program for today. The recent floods in Nebraska, Iowa, Wisconsin, South Dakota, and other parts of the Upper Midwest have caused devastating losses of property, which are estimated to exceed $1 billion. Some human lives were lost during the floods, and over 4,400 families had to be evacuated. In addition, the flooding caused the deaths of thousands of livestock. Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts called the flooding the most widespread destruction we've ever seen in our state's history. Beth, the outpouring of help from Nebraska and from really all parts of the country has been truly inspiring. Folks have generously contributed money for disaster assistance, and they've worked uh, to make those flood buckets for cleanup assistance. The youth group at our church put together uh, six or seven of those flood buckets. And yet I wonder how many people in Nebraska and around the country realize that there is a causal connection between climate change and these devastating floods. To find out more about this connection, I interviewed Darth. Dr. Martha Shulsky, who directs the Nebraska State Climate Office and is our state climatologist. Dr. Shulsky is also an associate professor in the School of Natural Resources at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Let's take a listen to my interview with Martha. I am with Martha Shulsky, our state climatologist. Thank you for being with us, Martha. Oh, you're welcome, Beth. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do as our state climatologist? Yes. Um, So a lot of what I do is concerned with monitoring and assessing the state of the climate and 
Um, increasingly, I get asked a lot about climate change and impacts for Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm also a professor in the School of Natural Resources at the university. So I teach a course on climate change and, and do research. Very interesting. Is that course for undergraduates or graduate students? It's for uh, undergraduate students. All right. Awesome. So uh, our show today is about climate change and kind of our responsibility as, as citizens to um, to care for the world the best way we can. Um, and as many of us know, Nebraska has been devastated uh, by floods this spring. Um, but a lot of us aren't clear on the linkage between climate change and the recent floods. Could you help our audience understand this connection a little bit? Sure. Um, so flooding, it's kind of this complex interplay uh, among weather factors as well as human factors. You know, how much precipitation falls, what's the state of the ground uh, when it does fall, and then where does it go? And that's a result of just the landscape and then what we do to the landscape. So, um, and climate change uh, itself, that you can think of that as essentially increasing um, the chances that we'll have weather conditions that would lead to flooding. Mm -hmm. If you look at historic trends of precipitation in Nebraska, that's generally increased Mm -hmm. during the spring. And if you look at uh, future change going forward, um, that trend is, is expected to continue where during the winter and spring, we're likely to get wetter. And so we're basically enhancing our chances, our probabilities for having that set of events mm-hmm. kind of that led to this flooding. Okay. You mentioned that part of one factor is, you know, what we're doing to the ground uh, when that precipitation does fall. Could you just briefly state like some, what are some of the best practices to be, I assume that has to do with farming and, and those kinds of things. What are some, some ways to, to, to care for the ground um, that, will, that will prevent the, the worst flooding in our state? Sure. Um, well, looking at kind of stormwater management practices and when the rainfall does hit the ground, where is it, is it able to go? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, keeping soils um, healthy is another factor in kind of reducing erosion on, on crop fields and agricultural fields. Um, this this uh, recent event in March, um, that was a l- little bit unique in that um, the rain that fall because of the storm that moved through, that was falling on top of frozen soils as well mm-hmm. as saturated soils. And so rivers were frozen, there was ice uh, on the rivers, and it was essentially hitting hitting concrete. And so right. there was really nowhere for the water uh, to go. So this was a bit of a unique uh, set of circumstances in terms of, of the event and what led up to it and then the impacts that were felt. Okay. Is your office uh, working at all with like, I know like the Army Corps of Engineers is the one that makes sure our dams and levees are in good working order. Um, do you talk back and forth at all about how to be prepared for the climate changing in the future and, and having stronger stronger dams that are going to accommodate for that? Um, yes, you know, we have worked with different um, groups uh, locally and regionally and um, helping to translate this uh, this wealth of climate information that we do have and translate these projections into something that is usable for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, um, I'm going to be going to a meeting that's hosted by FEMA um, here in the next few weeks to kind of assess the, uh, what was the uh, response and recovery like to, for this event mm-hmm. and then how can we be better prepared for this event in the future because yeah. it's they have happened in the past they will happen in the future and um, what we really want to do is reduce our risk and reduce the impact right absolutely um, so as we think a little bit more broadly about climate change and its causes um, what would you say in Nebraska are the ways that we uh, are, are the major ways that we contribute to an increase in greenhouse gases or, or other things that are escalating uh, the changing of our climate? Yeah, well, the, you know, the science is pretty clear. If you think about global climate change, then that's really a product of this enhancement of the greenhouse effect. Mm-hmm. It's a naturally occurring effect, but what we don't want is an enhancement of it. And that's, uh, we do that through uh, emissions of greenhouse gases like CO2 and methane, mm-hmm. nitrous oxide and so forth. CO2 is the major one. Um, and 
for Nebraska, we don't uh, necessarily have a um, an inventory of greenhouse gas emissions. Okay. Um, so that that's something that that we could do to kind of assess uh, what we're doing to, uh, you know, what sectors produce these emissions, um, and then what we can we do locally to to reduce our emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, the Environmental Protection Agency they do have an inventory, uh, a general inventory for the U.S. as a whole and. What it looks like is um, essentially there's three big pieces to that pie that Mm -hmm. contribute to emissions, and that's uh, electricity generation, transportation, and industries. Mm -hmm. Those are kind of the big three. Um, Then agriculture is around 10%, and commercial and residential is is on that order, about 10 to 12%. So generally for the U.S., we know where the emissions come from, Mm -hmm. um, but we don't have an exact breakdown um, for the state of Nebraska. Okay. Uh, now, I had read, um, I think, from the Journal Star or the, the Daily Nebraskan, one of the two, that a group of UNL research researchers were actually proposing to uh, the unicameral uh, kind of a, a climate change plan. Um, is And I know kind of some different things that happened with it. Um, do you, were you involved in that at all? Or do you have any kind of anything that was really meaningful that was maybe part of that plan that was proposed? So um, there was a state senator that did propose a bill in, uh, in this session. Uh, it was LB283, I believe, mm-hmm. and that was uh, essentially a climate action plan. And it looked at both um, mitigation of future climate change as well as adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was not directly involved in the development of the bill, mm-hmm. um, although I did testify when that was before the executive committee back in February. And uh, some others with with, uh, say the University of Nebraska Med Center um, did testify, and a, and a whole range of individuals mm-hmm. uh, showed up when when that was in committee. So, and that's not the first time that mm-hmm. a climate action plan has been put forward in the Nebraska legislature. Mm-hmm. Um, so there there has been efforts to. Um, uh, to look at, at legislation uh, in Nebraska, but nothing has has quite passed yet. Mm. Do you think, like overall, in that in that bill, where the kind of the, the the recommendations being made, would would they really be helpful uh, for you know mitigating climate change? Well, uh, one thing that would do was produce uh, an inventory for Nebraska okay. and look at uh, impacts to specific sectors as well as how do we reduce our emissions for specific sectors and kind of looking locally mm-hmm. uh, uh, at the at these both mitigation and adaptation efforts. So it was it it was. Uh, kind of all-encompassing mm-hmm. and quite broad and, and would be a pretty significant step forward for Nebraska. All right. Well, great. Well, I'm definitely going to keep my eye on that in the future and uh, be talking to some legislatures about keeping continuing to push that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Martha, uh, we're getting to the end of our interview here, um, but just generally, what do you think is the prospect for the, the future of, of our state and in our world? Um, are we going to, it sounds like if climate change continues on the track it's on, that we're going to experience more of the extreme weather. Do you foresee that getting, getting worse in the near future or kind of what are you thinking? Yeah, well, you know, if we keep, if we look at kind of this business as usual approach, then we can expect these accelerated trends of warming and changes in precipitation patterns. We can, we can expect that to continue. Um, and I've, you know, a, a key message from um, the most recent national climate assessment that, that came out a few months ago is that climate change uh, is here already. Um, we are, we're the, the cause, but or the primary cause, but we're also the solution. And mm-hmm. I think Nebraska is really well positioned because we inherently experience a lot of variability in our climate just right. because of where we're positioned. We're highly continental. Mm-hmm. And so that, that really, you know, hopefully could put us in the driver's seat of deciding our future and where we want to go and 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 what we want uh, our climate to look like. Wow. Uh, very interesting. I like that. I'm going to hold on to that. We, we're the primary cause, but we're also the solution. Um, I think that's something that all of us can take away. Um, well, wonderful. Martha, uh, is there anything else that you'd like our audience to know about about climate change in Nebraska or your work before we go? 
Um, well, I would just say that, um, you know, there's a lot of resources available um, through our office, through the university, through Extension. Um, there's a lot of great work that's being done in regard to natural resources and climate and managing our landscape uh, and water resources. So that Nebraska is really ripe for opportunity, and I'm just uh, really excited to, to live and work here. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Again, that was Martha Scholsky. Uh, who is our state climatologist. Thank you so much, Martha. Thank you. That was Martha Schultzke. It was great to interview her. And one thing that I think really came out of that conversation is just how important it is for our state to have a, a climate change action plan. Um, I think we can all get behind that and encourage our, our legislatures to, to do the work to, to put that in place. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with that, Beth. It's um you know, climate change is this huge, huge crisis that's confronting not just humanity, but the entire planet. And um, anytime there's a crisis, uh, we need to have a plan about how to address it. Right. Uh, it, it's sort of, in a way, it's just straightforward. And so I hope that we do develop a plan here in, in Nebraska. And is it too much to think that maybe Nebraska can be a model state for other states in terms of developing uh, plans to address um, climate change, to mitigate the effects, and to begin trying to address the, uh, the, the root causes? Uh, there's so much um, that, ca that needs to be done. Um, climate change is so global and so complex, it, uh, sometimes it seems as though there's it's too big of a problem for us to really do anything. I mean, just little old me or little old you, but the reality is this type of, of complex problem, there's no one person or one organization that's going to help us uh, overcome uh, the effects of climate change. Instead, it takes a lot of a lot of people working together. So there are things that uh, organizations can do to uh, limit their greenhouse uh, gases. Mm -hmm. There are things that uh, you and I can do as individuals to eliminate uh, greenhouse gases in our lives. And so it's very important that we all work together, uh, but without the hero complex that sort of we're going to solve it. it instead, right. it's all of us work, working together. Exactly. Richard, you know, uh, for many Christians, uh, it's the creation story in Genesis 1 that's pivotal when we think about that human relationship with nature and, you know, what our responsibility is to the earth, especially the part which describes the creation of the first humans. Uh, Genesis says, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, they were created male and female. God created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Beth, that, this is truly uh, a critical passage, uh, especially in terms of uh, how God intended for humans to be in relationship with uh, with the rest of creation. But at the same time, I think that Genesis 1 is frequently uh, misinterpreted by uh, Christians. Uh, one misinterpretation is to try and read this passage as being literally true right. uh, and inerrant in all aspects. Um, when people try to read this chapter as a literal scientific explanation and and here I'm talking about uh, biblical literalist and uh, the creationist movement within uh, the Christian faith. Um, when people try to read this chapter as literal scientific explanation, then any discrepancies between contemporary science and Scripture must they must be balanced or rectified, and 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 that usually means that science is wrong. And we must default to the Christ, uh, scriptural explanation or account. But this is really, when you think about it, <laughs> it's just an anachronistic interpretation of the Bible. That is, in a literalist reading of the Bible, the interpreter is trying to take and impose 21st century categories and forms of thought onto a text which was literally written thousands of years ago. It's like trying to force a square peg into a round hole. So 
I think this approach is invalid, and it, and it leads to a misunderstanding of this text. Rather than reading Genesis 1 as a scientific textbook, I believe that God intends for us to read and interpret this chapter as a description of the relationship that God intended for humans to have with the rest of nature, with God's good creation, and also it's a description of the relationship that God intends to have with with us humans. Now, that brings up another point uh, about the relationship between humans and nature. Um, I think I kind of hit it hard as I was reading the passage, Um, but the word dominion, can we talk about that? Certainly. uh, We do need to uh, talk about dominion. Normally, in everyday talk uh, or speech, we interpret the word dominion to mean uh, that someone has complete and absolute power over someone else or something else. Uh, In our contemporary context, uh, to have dominion means that we can do anything we want to. So to have dominion over nature means that we can do anything we want to with nature and the created world. If if we want to cut down all of the trees in the forest, uh, we can do that because God's given us permission. God's given us dominion. If we want to mine for uh, minerals and pollute pollute the land and and water sources, then we can do that because God said that we have dominion. But, um, you know, when you look in the context of the Hebrew world of Genesis, to have dominion meant something entirely different. To have dominion meant to take responsibility and and to care for nature. So in our modern context, um, we frequently use the word stewardship of nature to more uh, accurately interpret uh, Genesis 1. Uh, In the the milieu of uh, early Judaism, when uh, uh, the book of Genesis was first uh, shared uh, uh, orally, around the campfire, and then eventually written down. Um, we need to look at the, the other cultures around uh, the Hebrews at that time. For example, the Mesopotamians and the Egyptians. And, and it's really interesting that in the, in the Mesopotamian uh, culture and religion, as well as in the Egyptian culture and, and religion, their ruler, whether it's the Mesopotamian king or the Egyptian pharaoh, uh, the Mesopotamian and Egyptian people really saw their king or their pharaoh as being created in the image of their god or their gods. And so um, in their theology, in their ethics, they understood that the role of the leader, the king or the pharaoh, was to be responsible for taking care of the earth uh, for the land to make sure that their agricultural lands were, were well uh, uh, taken care of, and also to provide justice for those who were uh, who were on the fringes of society, the widows or the orphans. And uh, when you look at our our Christian text in, in Genesis one, what happens? Um, what the writer does in Genesis one is to take. Um, that, that concept that probably all of the Hebrew people were familiar with of the leaders being created in the image of God and what uh, Bernard Anderson, uh, an, an Old Testament professor, once wrote was to, he says, what the, the Genesis writer does is take that term and democratizes it mm-hmm. and says, you know, it's not just the leader's responsibility to care for the land, to work for justice, it's everybody's responsibility everybody's responsibility. And so in our beliefs uh, about our relationship with God as human beings, uh, Christians and others of the Abrahamic faiths believe that we are created in God's own image and that with that creation in God's image comes both privilege but also responsibility. And the responsibility is to take good care of God's good creation, to be good stewards. Of, of God's creation. Absolutely. And we could go on about that all day, but right now it is 9.30 here in Lincoln, Nebraska, and time for a break. Uh, you're listening to Counterbalance on KZUM, and we will be right back.
That was It's the End of the World as We Know It by R.E.M. You are listening to Counterbalance, Progressive Christian Perspectives on KZUM. Your hosts are me, Beth Menhusen, and Richard Randolph. We are pastors at Christ Connection Point United Methodist Church, one church in two locations with two different personalities, but a shared commitment to acting inclusively, serving others, doing justice, and seeking God. At Christ Connection Point, we strive to welcome, include, and affirm all persons, regardless of anything that divides us, like ethnicity, economic class, or sexual orientation. We recognize that all persons are created in the image of God and loved by God for who they are. We're talking today about climate change and the recent Nebraska floods. Our special guest today is the Reverend Kim Morrow. Kim currently works as Senior Associate at the Virtus Group, And in addition to her divinity degree from the Pacific School of Religion, Kim also has earned a certificate in sustainability and behavior change from the University of California at San Diego. In 2015, Kim was honored at the White House as a champion of change for her efforts on climate change with the faith community. In 2016, she was named as one of Lincoln's 30 most influential women by the Lincoln Journal Star. Her previous experience includes climate change outreach at the University of Nebraska, clean energy advocacy, and sustainability ministry. Kim serves on the Mayor's Environmental Task Force in Lincoln and on the board of Nebraska Interfaith Power and Light. Kim, welcome to our new show, Counterbalance. Thank you very much, Richard and Beth. It's great to be here. Great to have you. Well, uh, we'd like to just get started with our conversation. And... um, I want to begin uh, with uh, a quotation from what's now become an older book. Um, uh, Al Gore, uh, before he became vice president, uh, uh, wrote a book called Earth in the Balance. And in that book, uh, Kim, he writes that the environmental crisis is not a moral crisis, but rather it's a spiritual crisis. Can can you think of ways in which climate change illustrates uh, Al Gore? illustrates Al Gore's insight? Yeah, I think that's a really fascinating distinction between a spiritual crisis and a moral crisis. And it's an important one. Um, The way I understand a spiritual crisis is a kind of identity crisis where an individual might experience some drastic changes to their sort of meaning system, the way they understand themselves and their world, which might influence their their sense of being, their sense of purpose, their goals or values, et cetera. So when an, an event occurs in someone's life that is a radical sort of earthquake um, into their sense of understanding themselves and their world, that can generate a spiritual crisis. And I think that climate change can pose that deep sense of crisis, and it is posing that deep sense of crisis to many individuals. So it challenges our values and our belief system. And some of the the beliefs that I think it, it may challenge for us are the belief that the natural world will behave according to predictable patterns, mm-hmm. or the belief that I am safe, the belief that my future and the future of my country and that of my children will proceed according to predictable patterns. Or the belief that I can drive a car, heat my house, buy whatever I want without being limited in my personal choices and without having to account for those external costs. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, that I can do whatever I want. It's a very American belief. I can do whatever I want and I don't really have to think about how it's affecting other people. Um, and the belief that the American economy will works and is good and will continue the way it has been. So these are all pretty foundational beliefs, especially for us as Americans. Mm-hmm. And I think they are all being challenged by climate change. So that can bring about a spiritual crisis. Yeah, I can absolutely see that, Kim. Um, why do you think that Christian people should, and congregations particularly, should be concerned about climate change? You know, why do we, why do we see these as key issues for Christian Christian people and churches specifically? Well, I, Christians have have and should have a lot to say about this issue. Um, one, one starting point for us, you know, Richard or Beth, you read a few minutes ago, you read from the first chapter of Genesis, the mm-hmm. first creation story. And what's interesting is what follows that passage is the second creation mm-hmm. story, as you know. And the second creation story is the story of Adam and Eve in the garden and 
um, before that, um, it's a story of how God calls forth all of creation from the ground itself. Mm -hmm. And in Genesis 2, verse 15, it says, God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it, or in another translation, to till it and to keep it. Some people are more familiar with that. And so there's this foundational narrative that not only are we brought forth from the ground along with all other living beings in a way that we share a kinship with all of life, but that we have a foundational instruction from God that we are to till this and keep it. We are to care for this creation. Mm -hmm. So that can be a starting point for for Christians um, and and all who come from the Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, in addition, you know, we Christians see creation as a gift from God. It is a stunning gift. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. I believe that our role is to respond to that gift in love mm-hmm. and care. Um, there's also the notion of divine providence, um, which is the notion that the essential nature of the world is tending toward God's love and truth. Mm-hmm. And that God's intention in creating the world was to create a flourishing creation. Um, and we humans have unintentionally chosen to harm it. We're, we're sort of, um, but the thing is kind of rolling off the rails at this point. And yeah. so now yeah. we have a to choice to put it back, to put it back on course. Absolutely. There's also a deep Christian tradition to, to work for justice. Mm-hmm. And many Christian traditions have been quite good at this in other areas, like the work that's been done on poverty around the world and education. Um, lots of church groups are working on immigration right now. Even conservative church groups are working on pro-life issues. Like that's an example of a value that they hold, that they uh, work on publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of Christian groups on both the progressive and the conservative side have not made that link to carry their public justice work into the environmental sphere. And that is a link that desperately needs to happen. In a way, we sort of have... I think a lot of Christians are, we're sort of, we have anthropocentric blinders on. So we, we can see the justice issues and the concern for our neighbors, for other human persons. And I think that what we need to do is to broaden or to take those blinders off so we broaden our vision so that we see um, brothers and, and sisters that are not human but are part of creation or part of of, of, of uh, nature. And, of course, St. Francis saw that um, mm-hmm. centuries ago, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, particularly with his prayers about a brother ant and, and, and sister flame. Uh, so I think that part of what we need to do as Christians as we continue to grow in our understanding of God, our relationship with God is to begin to see that God really loves all of creation mm-hmm. uh, and God cares for all of creation. Yeah. It, it's interesting in Genesis 2, which you, you cited, the, that we're, first of all, the Garden of Eden is really an ecological community, right? Absolutely. That's, that's what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, in Genesis 2, that, that word that, that you were talking about which is translated as to serve, as, as to till the earth or to keep the earth. In Hebrew, it's obeyed, bod, which means the, that's, that is a definition to, to till something, to, to care for it, but it's not the first definition. Normally, that word is used as uh, to serve, hmm. as a subject would serve their king or a servant would serve their master. Oh, I didn't know that. It's, interesting. That very interesting. Yeah. Uh, it, and so what it means is that, when, is that when God puts Adam in the Garden of Eden, it's to serve the rest of creation. Mm-hmm. Wow. To serve the, the, the rest of, of creation. So that's the, the literal meaning of that, of that term. And I've always thought that was really interesting. Um, we think about being good stewards, but there's also this sort of concept of, of serve. And my, my personal opinion is that these two creation stories, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, uh, they're both in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And, and they're in the Bible for a reason, and that reason is to complement one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. So we, in, in Genesis 1, we have a transcendent God creating sort of by, by word, by fiat, and then in Genesis 2, we have 
God's, God's really portrayed as a gardener or a farmer when right. you get right down to it. Right. And God creates from the soil, from uh-huh. the rich soil. Uh, it's I think very to, earthy. Kind of like one's a top down and one's a one's bottom a bo- up. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, top down and bottom up. And, uh-huh. and you know, it's, I've always read that Genesis 2 passage. And, and in my mind, when God creates uh, Adam, the first person, uh, God's just delighted, just so delighted. And God's thinking, you know, what what can I do? I've created this. I've created this new creation. What what can I do? I, I want to give some some gift because I'm so excited and I'm so delighted. And so God creates the rest of creation. God mm-hmm. gives a gift of the ecological community to the mm-hmm. first human. Mm-hmm. I agree, and, and and I think as you said, God is creating out of His love or right. her love exactly. and delight. And and I think ultimately our purpose as the fruits of that creation mm-hmm. is to return that love. Absolutely. And one of the ways we return that love is by caring for creation. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And for each other. Yeah. When I, I, lo- go ahead. I, when I, so I, you know, I'm, I'm in seminary and I recently did a paper um, about what it means to be human. Oh. And kind of my uh, my conclusion is that a lot of times as being humans, we think that we are the most powerful, you know, that we have that dominion, that control. Mm-hmm. But really, if you step back and look at things from an ecological perspective, being the top of the food chain, we are incredibly vulnerable to the things that happen down the food chain. Um, mm-hmm. I was at the Humane Lobby Day at the Capitol a couple of weeks ago, and they were talking about um, the bill that's on the floor right now about prairie dogs and about how prairie dogs are kind of, they're like a a key part of the prairie ecosystem. And when Mm. they go or when they're poisoned, like they're being poisoned right now, um, it it affects, you know, the the eagle eats the prairie dog that's been poisoned. And then Mm -hmm. the eagle, you know, defecates in the river and then there's poison in the water and then we drink the water. Um, And it's like, you know, really when you think about it, being at the top, rather than having all the power, we're really the most vulnerable to everything that happens to the species that come before us. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, what it means to be human is, is to be vulnerable and to right. be, um, to, and to have a, res- we try to protect ourselves, of course, by caring for that, that mm-hmm. earth. Uh, mm-hmm. It's, it's a, a gift, but all, it's not, it's also a little bit of a self-serving gift. You know, if we take mm-hmm. care of that, uh, we benefit. I think we've also had this illusion that we are separate from all the mm-hmm. rest of creation and all mm-hmm. other species. And like you said, Richard, that we there's an anthropocentrism that we have we prioritize our own being over everything else. And the truth is, as you just explained, Beth, we are inherently interconnected with mm-hmm. all of life. We can only live as long as we have air to breathe and water to drink, and and all the rest of the thriving ecosystem supports our life. There's a, a radical humility, I think, that the climate change crisis invites us to adopt, because we have had a lot of hubris in our relationship to creation, and this is a radical <laughs> exercise in humility to realize that we are dependent on the rest of life. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. You know, we have, uh, within the Christian tradition, we have, um, I think, uh, some very powerful scripture uh, from our sacred text, from the Bible, that calls us to stewardship and to caring for God's good creation. And we also have some important insight, uh, theological insight. St. Saint, Saint Francis, for example, uh, who was able really, uh, sort of a long time ago, early, and the development of Christian thought about the environment to see that God's love extends to all of creation. And yet, um, there are many uh, faith communities which um, have trouble talking about climate change. And so I was wondering, Kim, in in your uh, work, uh, what are some of the barriers that you think um, prevent faith communities from talking about climate change and and about what we need to do as persons of faith. In my experience, it really comes down to two things, and those are fear and politics, <laughs> which uh, is maybe disappointing, but in a way, maybe it's sort of reassuring that the problems are not bigger than that. Um, you know, faith communities tend to be places where the most important value is harmony because if you have a faith community that is 
bifurcating and arguing with itself, it can easily self-destruct. Um, and so pastors kind of, part of the job description is to keep that community together. Right. And one of the ways you do that is by avoiding conflict. Mm-hmm. And so because, um, you know, one of the biggest tragedies that I think maybe the biggest tragedy that has happened is that climate change and the environment became a politicized issue. A, a couple of decades ago. And so we started off on this terrible track in which if you cared about the environment, you were labeled a liberal mm-hmm. and then you were maybe labeled a Democrat. Um, and therefore it became a political issue that pastors felt like they should not address in mm-hmm. church. Um, and it should not be that way at all. Um, care for the environment should be a um, nonpartisan justice issue, just the same as way we talk about poverty or the same way we talk about um, human rights in general. Um, right. So I think that pastors really need to have the courage to step up and claim their prophetic voice and speak out for what is right and have the confidence that doing so their their people will follow them to the, to a place of true justice and not not into bifurcation. You know, most of us uh, ordained clergy are um, most of us are people who gravitated to the humanities or the social sciences in in college. Do you think that it's possible that a lot of clergy just sort of feel intimidated because climate change is such a complex scientific uh, issue? I, I I don't think we're there anymore. You don't need to be a scientist to understand climate change. It's it's a very simple issue. I mean, there's all kinds of things that that ordinary people understand. I mean, you don't drink your tap water if it looks like it's <laughs> filled with cloudy stuff, and you don't need to have a degree in chemistry to know not to drink that water. Um, so no, I think it's just connecting these dots between our relationship with all living being and and the sense of working for a just world. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Absolutely. So um, in some respects, climate change is this huge, global, intractable problem that's easy to become so overwhelmed, like we talked about earlier, that we just become paralyzed and, and unable to act. Um, in what ways do you think that the Christian perspective provides hope in the face of that? I think it provides hope in some really key ways that are very important. Um, One is the belief that the belief in the world that God intended for us and the belief that God intended a world that was thriving and just where people are treated fairly and people have the right to, to live in health and, and all species have the right to live and to flourish. There's also the belief that God is with us in this struggle that God does not give up on us. Mm -hmm. Um, And the belief that we have the power to make change. Um, We have the power to practice love and compassion. We have the power to to use our own prophetic voices to speak up for what is right. Um, And I also think that there's a quote from the Buddhist eco-philosopher Joanna Macy, who's clearly not a a Christian if she's a Buddhist, but um, she's one of the bright lights that I am following and reading these days. And she, her work has helped me tremendously. And uh, she has a quote and she says, the most remarkable feature of this historical moment on earth is not that we are on the way to destroying the world. We've actually been on the way for quite a while. It is that we are beginning to wake up mm-hmm. from a, as from a millennia long sleep to a whole new relationship to our world, to ourselves and to each other. And that's really the mindset that I have come to adopt. Um, Climate change is no doubt an overwhelming crisis. And yet it is also um, a remarkable opportunity. And more and more and more people and communities are indeed waking up. And therefore we have the choice to remake our society into a better one. And that's an exciting opportunity. Absolutely. Um, I was wondering, Kim, if you could talk a little bit more about... about, um, what you just said and about some of your uh, hopes and dreams and, and plans for working in, in Lincoln in, in terms of this? Yeah, I, I'm working on, on a couple different levels right now. Um, as a professional, I work as a sustainability consultant for Veritas Group, and we help organizations and municipalities uh, lower their ecological footprint. 
Um, we are also doing climate resiliency planning now, and I have just completed a climate resiliency plan for a small community in South Dakota, which has been a fascinating process. Mm-hmm. And I have begun to have conversations with people here in Lincoln, Nebraska, about doing a climate resiliency plan or climate resiliency work for our community. Um, the recent flooding it created a situation for us here in Lincoln where our water supply was compromised mm-hmm. because the electricity went out to the pumps that pump our water from the Platte River. And we are people um, in the in the city of Lincoln already knew that water was our biggest vulnerability in terms of climate change. But I think this situation just brought that front and center. And so there's a lot more work to be done at really analyzing um what a climate resiliency plan does is it first analyzes the demographic information of a community. Mm-hmm. So it looks for where the most vulnerable people are in terms of um, economic status and floodplain um, ability status, age, et cetera. And then it looks at the climate hazards and looks at how those climate hazards are likely to affect a whole range of sectors within the community. Mm. And from there, you identify the most important vulnerabilities that a community may face in the face of coming climate impacts. And then you work to create a plan to to build resilience toward those vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. And I think that going through such a process for the community of Lincoln would be one of the most important things we could do here. And uh, the benefit of this kind of process too is it really engages the community and it really activates the creativity of a community and it can help develop more thriving and cohesive structures for a community that one could argue we maybe should have had in place already mm-hmm. or that would have made us a better community anyway. Mm-hmm. And that's an example of where this crisis pre- pre- presents some opportunities for us to really thrive in new ways. Mm. Looks like, or sounds like, um, there would be opportunities um, in Lincoln for churches to be involved in sort of promoting or facilitating the, the development of a climate resiliency a plan. Uh, it sounds like there there would need to be lots and lots of conversation among yes. different uh, shareholders and different groups in the community. Yes, there would need to be, and and um, the part of strengthening a community's resilience is strengthening the connections between people and between communities. And so, churches are an ideal sort of network, you might say, right. of community populations who are already oriented toward working for the welfare of people. And so I think they could definitely be activated in some really exciting ways to build our resilience. That sounds great. Well, we look forward to hearing more about that as you continue to develop your plans. And uh, it's really, really pretty exciting. Uh, I'm glad you shared that with us. Um, let's, um, we're coming close to the end of our time together. And let's just talk a little bit for people who may not know, what are, are ways that um, a persons of faith can contribute to the reduction of greenhouse gases and the, and the mitigation of, of climate change. Um. I think there are there are kind of two levels of things that people can do. There are definitely the practical um, actions that people can take, and uh, some of those actions might be you know to drive electric, drive electric cars. As next time you're ready to upgrade to a vehicle, see if you can purchase an electric vehicle. Um, don't use single-use plastics. We should all be avoiding single-use plastics as much as possible. Um, composting our organic materials is a huge way to avoid the creation of methane. Uh, we should all be conserving energy. We should all be um, biking, walking, busing as much as possible. Um, this this next one is not very popular in Nebraska, but if we if people who are able to stop eating red meat, that makes an enormous impact on the environment, on uh, the production of Red meat um, has a huge environmental footprint. Um, so switching to a low meat or vegetarian diet can make a big impact. Say, say more about that. It's sort of not completely intuitive. Um, but what is it about red meat beef that makes it, um, that, that makes it a prob- problematic for climate change? Part of it is the inputs that go into feeding cattle. Um, all the, the agricultural um, cropland and the processes and the greenhouse gases that are created in in the whole production of creating um, feed for cattle and um, 
and then the methane that cattle produce themselves mm-hmm. is is an important issue. Um, and it's a whole kind of supply chain um, situation of the greenhouse gases that are created and the, and the land use issues as well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and not to mention water water use issues also that go into cattle It takes production. a lot of water to produce a pound of beef. Yes, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that people can do is to speak up, um, whether that's speaking up to elected leaders to support uh, policies that will help um, mitigate climate change, um, or also speaking up to our companies, you know, using our sort of role as consumers to let the places where we shop know that we want, for example, no plastic packaging. We want um, more uh, compostable packaging, things like that. Can um, Companies can make a big difference. So if you call them out on Twitter, that kind of thing, you know, companies pay attention to that. But I also think that um, there's a lot that we can do in terms of our inner dimension, the kind of spiritual dimension of change. And in that way, I mean to cultivate a sense of our interbeing, as I mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. to cultivate a sense of humility and awe in relation to all of creation, to cultivate a sense of the awareness of the impacts of our actions, to be mindful of the choices that we are making all through the course of the day. What are we purchasing? What are we throwing away? How can we lighten our footprint? Um, To cultivate compassion for the species that may be being harmed by our actions or may be being eradicated by our actions. And to really um, cultivate a new sense of relationship with ourselves, with others, and for the earth. Um, The opportunity to distill our deepest values and to live according to them. That is a big undertaking, and I think it's actually a profound Christian practice that uh, sometimes we may not pay as much attention to. But we have the opportunity now to really examine uh, on, a, on a deep sense how we live and how we wish to live going forward. Absolutely. That's, that's beautiful, Kim. Thank you. It's awesome. But I'm afraid, though, that that's all the time that we have for today. We've been talking with Kim Morrow from the Nebraska Interfaith Power and Light Group. Kim, thank you so much for being the in-studio guest for our very first uh, official episode of Counterbalance. My pleasure. Thank you. We'll have to have you come back again and continue this uh, very rich conversation. I'd love to. Mm You've been listening to Counterbalance, the new progressive Christian talk show hosted by me, Beth Menhusen, and Pastor Richard Randolph. Be sure to tune in next Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m., where our topic will be the resurrection in contemporary science. That's all, all the time we have now. Goodbye until next Saturday.